0: Welcome to the Self Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller. I hunt for the latest and greatest authors and experts in self help and ask them the in depth questions I'm curious about for my own growth. I bring these conversations series to you so we can learn and grow together. In this episode, we're talking about solving tough problems and making decisions we feel confident about. By not taking an either or black and white, right or wrong approach to them. I mean, we're in a culture, it's a wash with the media, especially just that. And yet most truths and daily decisions we must make are not a result of right or wrong issues necessarily that we're going to live or die from, but rather choices we make where one may prove more beneficial than another. When we hold things as right, wrong, good, bad, either, or we cause ourselves undue anxiety, which we're seeing in the culture. And further, we're pressured to make these one-sided decisions all or nothing without the wisdom we'd benefit from if we didn't view different perspectives as opposing forces. This show is meant to equip you to make smarter decisions and with less anxiety and more confidence and more wisdom. With me is Wendy K. Smith, a Harvard-educated, award-winning academic and the Dana J. Johnson Professor of Management and Faculty Director of the Women's Leadership Initiative at University of Delaware. She's an expert on organizational paradoxes. You'll hear us use that word a lot here, paradoxes, exploring how leaders and individuals effectively respond to contradictory yet interdependent demands. You hear that verbiage. We're going to really dig into it. She spends her time continually working to better manage the paradoxes of life that we all face. Wendy's research focuses on strategic paradoxes and how leaders and senior teams effectively respond to contradictory agendas. Not with us, but a co-author of their new book, which is called Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. Uh, co-author with her is Marianne. W. Lewis, who is Dean and Professor of Management at the Lindner College of Business, University of Cincinnati. Marianne, too, is a thought leader in organizational paradoxes, exploring tensions and competing demands surrounding leadership and innovation. Again, the book containing this message that we're going to be talking about here is called Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. You can find that at Amazon or anywhere. Now, if you find value from this self-helpful podcast in this episode, please leave a rating and a review. Let people know what you thought. Let us know what you thought. Uh, best thing you can do is talk about it with somebody else. Talk about the ideas you hear. You can find me, always connect with me at my website or social media at kevinmiller.co. Well, next up, Wendy Smith and our discussion on both and thinking. Wendy, you are uh, sitting here. I mean, the book, to use the expression, had me at hello. Uh, I love the title, Both and Thinking. It comes up so often in just my own discussions, not even here, hopefully on the show, but just even personally with my friends and the people that I grapple with life talking about. And we are in such a life and a culture of, as of course, you know, and you write about of not both and thinking, but very polarized. And I'm even going to go to to right and wrong, black and white, and it's killing the culture. And so when I saw that book sent to me by uh, probably your agents or publisher, I don't even remember anymore. I thought, oh my gosh, I want to talk. You guys have done the research. So thank you for being here. This is in this is high, highly in my interest right here,
1: Kevin. Well, thank you. I mean, I am such a fan of you and your work, so I will take that compliment and um, be so grateful. And I'm excited to dig in.
0: I am too. I mean, in your tagline, embracing creative tensions to solve your t- toughest problems. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. We want to know what to do with. These What decisions to make, and I, my gosh, I feel like I face maybe it 's just a time of life maybe it 's just the evolution that we all face that it seems like there 's always more decisions to make though I should probably put that in the category of where we are this is the self helpful podcast we 're in self help personal development the, the reason we 're here and the reason people are listening is they 're looking to grow if you 're looking to grow and change, you buy proxy are going to be facing decisions. And we feel that, and I I want to talk to you about all the concepts you brought up, like the tension of this or that, which we tend to look at as polarized things. But I feel like you did such a good job of saying they're not really, they really have a, is it fair to say a a working tension that even makes them both relevant?
1: I think, yeah, absolutely. And You know, if we were just to take a step back and think, you know, what we're talking about in this book is something that we think is applicable and relevant, you know, across the board from how do we figure out what we're going to have for breakfast to how do we navigate our careers to how do we balance work and life in our individual lives? And to, you know, where you started us off to thinking about how do we navigate politics and our relationship with other people around politics or bigger global issues and the relationship we have with people that have different points of view from us. So the starting point um, to this work is the, as you said, the tensions, the tug of war, the challenges that we face and the dilemmas that those bring up for us that 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 lure us into making a decision. It's all of these kinds of questions that we're challenged by. That's the starting point um, to think about, which is what are the kinds of challenges that we face in our daily lives and how can we do that better?
0: Well, and I'm wondering, Wendy, that I, I use the word decision fatigue a lot and it seems to be relevant because we are, it feels like honestly faced with more options than ever because of the information age, because of whatever, anything that we want to do, anything we want to purchase or, or an event we want to do any action we want to take. There are so many options, competing options, similar options, and we have decision fatigue. And I wonder, is it, I hadn't thought about it till reading your book that is it a laziness factor even, and I'll just own it for myself that instead of trying to hold the tension, between two things, is it just, it's just more efficient to go, you know what, let's just make it a right or wrong and just totally abandon or boycott that option. I'm just going to fall on this one, which is what feels like we see in the media. Any day we go and read the headlines right now, everybody is, it's good or bad, right or wrong, completely polarized. If you're not on the same bandwagon, the other side is absolutely evil, which is the exaggerated, but fairly relevant. And it just, it, it honestly takes more effort. And should we say wisdom and maturity to hold those and say, they probably aren't, I find myself wondering, I'll ask you there's so often, are, are they really dissimilar at the heart of it? Are these things really dissimilar at the, at the core values? And I'll stop there and then I'll bring up some specifics.
1: Well, well, I love that. And, you know, maybe it's helpful to get into some specifics to okay. illustrate, uh, you know, um, I think that it is, uh, it's certainly easier, but there's a whole lot of factors that I would say conspire to lead us into either or thinking. Okay. And, I, you know, I might step away from laziness because that feels so judgmental. I mean, we do it all the time. It's so natural to all of us. So it does take effort. And it takes some emotions to shift our thinking. But before we do, I think you're right. Like there's, there's reason to kind of understand what examples look like. And um, why is it that we're so lured? You know, why is it? Why is either or thinking so alluring? Why is it so attractive to us? And one of the reasons is because it's, it's easier, we just want to move on. And one of the reasons is because it's uncomfortable to hold opposing ideas. It's it's not easy. It's, it's, it's emotionally uncomfortable. We, want to, we do want to make a clear decision and move on. And, and that's hard.
0: Well, you do a great job in the book. One of your key top or well words is paradox. Right. Which I, I do like the word. We come to it so often. And let me give, you actually have, and one might've been in the intro and one was later on, but you have two, I pulled out two definitions, very similar, but um, paradoxes are interdependent persistent contradictions that lurk within our present dilemmas. I like that. But then later on you had paradox, a contradictory yet interdependent elements that exist simultaneously and persist over time. Yeah. And then you actually break it out into four different types of paradox, but that is so often what we see these is a paradox. It seems like a polarized opposites, but then you say, no, those are, those are still in tension and in relationship with each other, and what I extrapolate is, it would one even exist without the other, and we need that. Well, let me stop there, and because I, I, I and I'll got a further question then.
1: There is well, there's so much to say about paradox. Yeah, I, you know, I feel like just just by way of illustration, because I want to be really empathetic to everybody listening to this, yeah. uh, that paradox is kind of a complex idea and living in both and which is applying paradox to our decision-making, you know, is hard. I'll just stop by giving you really briefly how I got into this, Please, right. Yeah. And, and what, um, why I started to think about paradox Are one of the reasons, uh, part of it was just my own decision-making was so, um, black and white. I, I, you know, and, uh, we, we like to say that, uh, that, research is me search uh, that we're studying the, our own blind spots. And here I was sort of facing all kinds of life decisions, career decisions and feeling very um, stuck in them. So one example, I, uh, was you know when I was in college, I was really struggling. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted direct impact. I wanted to know the certainty of uh, going to medical school, like all my pre-med friends. Uh, but what I was was a student leader on campus and intrigued by all of this leadership. And I wasn't sure where I was going to go. And I felt so stuck in that. In fact, I'll tell you so stuck that one day I was at the career center kind of looking through when there still was a career center. It wasn't all online. Uh. And I was looking through books when there were still books and it wasn't all online. And, uh, I was so frustrated by that, that it was like the middle of winter. I left the career center, hopped on my bike. It was cold outside. I was at Yale. I was in New Haven. I biked up the side of East Rock, this small rock mountain, a couple miles up. And I just sat there, like partially meditating Maybe thinking that if I couldn't rationalize my way through a very clear decision about my career, maybe I would like find some kind of internal, intuitive sense about it, or some divine inspiration about what I was going to do with my life. And you know, of course, none came, so I just biked back down and moved forward. But it was—it's those kinds of moments of the ways in which these decisions come to us that feel like we've got to—we've got to make a choice between them, and the decisions, you know sometimes they feel easy and we just decide and move on. Like, what am I going to have for breakfast? But sometimes they don't and we, we sort of get stuck in them. And what we're exploring is whether the way that we think about the decisions, the, the I mean, meta, meta thinking, the, the, the sort of structure that we bring to those decisions might be holding us back. And that's where we get to this idea of paradox by saying, maybe there's something underlying those decisions that can give us a different way of thinking about
0: them. Oh, well, yes. And you define that. So well in the book, and we'll talk about that. One of the things though, that you got me thinking of Wendy, you and Marianne in the book was just my perspective on the decisions, even that decision fatigue, it's a negative you know, term. And I've said before that I, and I know as an entrepreneur, uh, for one thing, you know, you have more decisions to make and I sometimes will find myself, man, I'm just tired. I'll do that at home. Sometimes, you know, what do you, somebody will ask a question? I'm, dude, I'm just tired of making decisions. I don't, of course that is until somebody starts making decisions for me. And then I realize my gratitude for getting to make a lot of decisions, but <laughs> you got me thinking about again, another term that I've said before is, you know, sometimes I wish there would just be a stone tablet that would fall out of the sky and say, look, yeah. Kevin do this. And yet. Reading through your book, I thought, you know what? Not really, though. I mean, do we really want things that easy and cut and dry? Should I not be enjoying the decision-making process and the grappling with choices in the same context that we would talk about, you know, enjoying the journey, not the destination. It got me thinking about road trips and how many times do we go on a trip? Really the most enjoyable thing and most memorable thing in the experiences we talk about is the road trip to get there much more than whatever it is we did at the end. Can I start thinking just more positively And gratefully about the decisions, the privilege to even grapple with half of them and that this is what is honing me to make a good decision. I I don't really want there to be just zero option and just have it dictated for me. That's called jail and confinement (laughs) and prison. It really, I mean, don't we want the freedom and yet we're often so negative about the freedom that we have with so many options.
1: Yeah, you know, you're bringing up so many important things. I think that one of the things that we find about this idea of making decisions is that one reason we want them, um, well, two things. First, uh, there's a great um, psychologist, Barry Schwartz, who talks about the paradox of choice. One reason these decisions are hard is because there's just so many choices. And actually, there's this ironic effect that we think that The more choices we have, the more that we have control over things, but actually the more choices we have, the more frustrated we feel about our decisions, right? It has that ironic negative effect. And so, you know, if we go into the grocery store and there's three kinds of cereals, we can pick one. If we go into the grocery store and there's 50 kinds of cereals and 20 different size boxes, it becomes so overwhelming to us that we don't want to pick. And so that's one of the things you're making me think of The, the second thing is, um, you know, this idea of like, let it, let's let just be certain and let's kind of get the decision on with and move forward. And what we find in um, our own research and what others have found is that 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 sort of emerges, that emerges in part because uh, we don't like uncertainty. Uh, uncertainty is scary. It leaves things open. We want things more definitive. So it's better if there's something that's decided and we can move on. And so we're less likely to keep the decision open. And um, and the other piece is that once we've made those decisions, and I think we find this in our lives as well, we want, we would like, we we expect ourselves and we certainly expect others to be really consistent about those decisions. That once they've sort of laid the ground and made a decision, we want to see those decisions happen again and again. And this is partially some... Uh, you know, old research from Robert Cialdini in his book, yeah. Influence, where he yeah. brings up this idea about how much we expect other people to be consistent and therefore want to show up as being consistent. Um, so so there's this like, it's, it's partially um, this sense of like getting the decision done. So we're just like done with the open-ended thinking about it. And then there's the, once we've made that decision, we want to be consistent. But here's what we find, which is that, even though kind of keeping the decision open and living in paradox can be frustrating at first, what we find is that over time the creativity that emerges from it, and we can unpack why and how is actually quite energizing. So, or it can be energizing. It's sort of double-edged. It's this double-edged sword where on one hand it can be really frustrating. And on the other hand, it can be really enabling and energizing and, um, and that's the promise or the possibility.
0: Well, it does feel like that when you look at like I'm a fan of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien, and we talked, we've done some shows on their, you know, the Inklings who would get together and talk about things. But I really enjoy that kind of concept of, I use, I like the word grappling, grappling with ideas, pondering different things. And it seems like yeah to some degree you get guys like that and that's kind of what they did that's what they're known for is grappling with that and that was so to your aspect of that creates a, a positivity and, and energy a growth in and of itself as opposed to again looking at it as this negative that that, that you bringing me to looking at it more positively that the grappling in and of itself just like the journey is so important and is a I mean, there's my growth for wisdom, maybe right there. And without that tension to grapple with and things are not that hard and we're just in a comfortable space, but probably not one of growth. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. And again, so I want to go back to, you know, this definition of paradox, because uh, what's interesting to me is that so much of art and literature, you know, you talk about C.S. Lewis or J.R. Tolkien. I mean, my family is all big Harry Potter fans. Well, most of my family is big Harry Potter fans. Or we think, you know, that there's... There's these elements of paradox embedded in those that are intriguing to us, and what make us think that there's something really interesting and complex in these ideas, and that we want to that that's sort of um, uh, interesting to us that that we want to kind of play with, that we want to engage with, and so you know if I take a step back to so this idea of paradox is that if. You know, that we have these dilemmas. Dilemmas are the moments where we have to make a choice about something, right? Am I going to spend this evening, uh, staying at work and getting a project finished, or am I going to go home and be with my family? Uh, am I going to, um, decide as an entrepreneur to, uh, take to really double down on the product that I'm looking at or look to like expand and go more broad. So depth or breadth or, you know, am I going to um, it, you know, in my own life, uh, am I going to, what, what's my career going to be? Am I going to be going to follow a pre-med or am I going to go and uh, try some other kind of leadership business orientation uh, that I'm interested in? You know, we have these moments that feel like uh, they, they force a choice on us. There's a dilemma And what we argue is, and and you use this this language that we use, lurking within these dilemmas, like underneath them, if we sort of peel back the curtain, underneath them is this structure of paradoxes where there are these dualities, these opposing forces that seem like they're pitted against one another, so we have to choose between them, but actually that they are interdependent and interwoven. And if we could see the ways that they're interwoven, we can step back and make better decisions. So. Underneath our decisions are things like grappling with the tension between long term and short term, and the tension between what I'm gonna do for myself and what I'm gonna do for someone else, self and other, or the tension between being cooperative and giving to people, or being competitive and taking from other people, or the tension between love and hate, or you know, the tension between in organizations focusing on your bottom line and your Profits are focusing on, you know, a broader mission and the impact that you're going to have on the world or, you know, and, and they go on and on. And these paradoxes, we, we say that they persist. They never go away. They might show up in the clothing of a different dilemma, but we're always grappling with self and other today and tomorrow, short term and long term, love and hate, give and take, introversion and extroversion. These, are, they, they always emerge just in different, clothing of different dilemmas and the question is can we sort of get our heads around understanding that those paradoxes the ebb and flow of these competing ideas to get us to a better point point? and so if i bring this back to literature like again so I, we're big harry potter fans right enmeshed in the harry potter series is this ongoing question of like good and evil and it's not just that there's good and that there's evil and you gotta like the good wins out over the evil it's that you know, the evil is embedded in the good. The good is embedded in the evil. Like, and again, I'm just going to speak to Harry Potter because I know that series well, but like Harry Potter shares this underlying core with Voldemort, the evil force. And they're, you know, and they have to sort of uh, it, grapple with that ongoing question of like, am I good? Am I evil? Where do I, you know, how do I be good when there's this underlying sort of tendency toward things that I don't like? And so, so I do think that these kinds of ideas, these ebbs and flows are, are all over the place for us.
0: It, it, uh, yes, I'm. I'm interested in your Harry Potter analogy there because I go. So I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, and and the same thing. You know, watching the the, the trilogy, the main trilogy, Lord of the Rings, it, the most one of the most difficult parts is just dealing with Gollum. And I'm thinking, I just in in real life, I would have just gotten rid of the dude immediately. And yet he plays this part, and you've got to deal with that. And it's so hard to to reconcile. So, and so on that note of, again, good and evil, right and wrong, black and white that we tend to do. And you mentioned a minute ago, certainty. That's a a hot button word for me these days, because I feel like, and my listeners have, have heard me talk about this multiple times on the show, that it feels like, maybe we've always been here. It just feels so acute now that we're at this place where you have to have a perspective, you have to have knowledge of and a perspective on everything out there, every issue, and you have to be kind of rock solid on it and certain. And I, as I look at some of these, especially the big issues and even the smaller issues in life, can we really be certain about any of them? I find it almost impossible because you take, you take an issue. Well, this happened. i will we'll cite a specific one back with. COVID, not COVID, which is still here, but back when we were at the initial aspects of it and then the vaccine, you know, looking at should we get vaccinated or not. So, one of my closest friends, Dr. Randy James, he's a medical doctor. People are looking to him for counsel. What should they do? Well, he's not on the front lines studying this stuff, so he has to turn to those that he respects. And so he and I are having lunch one day and he says, man, he says, I'm stuck because I'm looking to this guy on the front lines and he's saying, absolutely, you've got to go get vaccinated. And on the other side is somebody he highly respects saying, no way. And he's supposed to come and give counsel. He says, man, I can't have certainty. He says, I don't even know what to do for myself. He and I ultimately, and I'll be candid, I've said this before, we did go get vaccinated at one point and I followed him as my trusted advisor and he said, Dude, I'm just finding less reasons not to, that is not at all certainty. And yet we're over here and we feel like we have to be certain. And I find very few of these big ticket topics, especially that we can be absolutely certain about no different than to boil it down to when you want to buy a new car and you're sitting here grappling with it or deciding what degree to go after in college and see, you're probably not going to get certainty. You're going to have to fall on some level of, Hey, this is the best I've figured out at this point. And then there's a little gap of faith that you just got to one. So that's one issue. Why do we have to, well, I'll, I'll stop there. Why do we grab it? To, is that why that certainty? Because we just want to erase or eradicate that we really can't. And it feels like a facade to some degree, but that's where we're at so acutely in the culture now.
1: Absolutely. And the pandemic is such a good example. I love that you brought that up, because it highlights for us just how much in that certainty, um, there's this underlying fear. I mean, the, yeah. the consequences in the pandemic were were... Uh, extreme, right? We're talking life and death consequences. And so people were making and there there was a lot of information that just wasn't known. There was a lot of so we were trying to make very certain decisions about uh, things that had huge consequences with a lot of unknown information. And that is really hard. And it's emotional. And actually... Ironically, what we saw a lot of people doing was claiming clarity around a decision, not saying, I don't know, and I'm uncertain, but a lot of, you know, and we did. And I I just want to give some of our leaders some, you know, some uh, kudos, because there were leaders that said, look, we don't know that we're uncertain. Information is unfolding, you know, and we have to revisit our decisions. But what we wanted from our leaders was, here's exactly what you should be doing. And we wanted them to be clear and then consistent with that advice, even as the information was changing over time. So it's partially the certainty we've made a decision. And then it's partially the we at the consistency that we want that information or we want that decision to remain and be um, the same over time because we like that consistency, even as the situation is changing, even yes, as there's yes. more information along the way. You know, and I think um, – Kevin, one of the things that we talk about in terms of living in paradox, living in the both and being able to listen to and accommodate alternative perspectives and particularly alternative perspectives when it's from different people that, you know, we don't necessarily agree with. How do we listen to and appreciate different perspectives, even when we don't necessarily in our gut agree with that? There's value in being able to acknowledge that there's different perspectives and there's maybe possible synergies between them. Like one of the things that we talk about is the value of being able to say either I don't know or maybe I don't have the whole picture here. Maybe there's more to this and I'm going to be open and curious and listen to people who are different than us to be able to see the bigger picture.
0: I absolutely. And it, again, that's why you're here. I, I love the, the topic and the concept. I've found myself, I have historically, Wendy, been very black and white. I, t- we talked a little bit before this about some of my religious background and that's, that was the, some of the pillars really was of certainty of black and white, of right and wrong, of good and bad. And that I, that I don't find um, support for uh, so much these days. And so I played with it, even with my family, with my kids of going, look, and I said this a minute ago to the best of my abilities from everything I've experienced and I got to make a decision now I'm going with this one but is it the best is it right I I just can't say that it's the best I can figure out now and to what you said it may change later I need to be open man for one thing my kids are so much more receptive of that than me convincing them of right wrong black white good bad and Yet again, the culture, it was interesting that you reminded me talking about the vaccine that as my buddy, Randy was looking at docs, he was, you know, looking and seeing which ones did get vaccinated, which ones didn't. And he found one and please, Mr. Amen, forgive me, but it might've been Daniel. Amen. Uh, that, uh, cause we had interviewed his wife and he might've been the, one of the ones, uh, that we found and he did. So we're looking at it going, holy smokes. Well, if he did, it, it must be. And, and again, I, I'm so sorry if I'm misquoting. It. it wasn't him, it was somebody else, but whatever the doctor was, if it was Dr. Amen or not. We found out later that, and he quoted saying, I actually did it because the main place that I practice medicine at required it. And so I decided to based on that. It wasn't based on some certainty that he came to, it was from a cultural reason, and he made the decision there. That totally takes it out of the game of, well, he did it. It must be okay. That must be what we. Should do, but yeah. another piece of this, Wendy, is so often, and you brought up that that was life or death issues for for people, for the culture, or whatnot. But so often, as I'm reading your book and I'm thinking about, and you showcased so well a lot of examples of your own life, of Mary Ann's life, and of people that you've you know been privy to, and so many of the issues they're not life or death. It's should I send my kid to that school or that school? Should I go to college at this place? Should I take a job uh, here or here? Should I pursue this relationship or or that one? And I look at that and you got me thinking that so often it's really not, not only not life or death issues, but with those, neither of them is going to be that bad. And I'm going to piss some people off here. You know, Ford, Chevy, you know, if it's the same year make model and it's been taken care of, if it's a new car, you know, you're not going to have a really bad outcome either way, probably. I mean, you're going to, and yet we get so concerned. And I see people with such high anxiety. And again, these polarized looking for a certainty on something that you're, is is either choice really going to be that bad? And I, I think so often not. And yet we, why, and it, you brought me to thinking, why do we do that? Why do we get ourselves in such a wad over these yeah. things where it, it's it's probably not going to be really bad either way, but we so again, long for that certainty and don't want the paradox of probably both are okay. And like you said, intertwined.
1: Yeah. And I think, and here here's the important idea, right? Because in our work, the important idea is to say, okay, so I have these two choices here. Am I going to make myself a really healthy smoothie for breakfast or am I going to eat the, you know, muffins that are in my house for breakfast? Uh, You know, and one is going to give me a quick shot of energy and one is going to make me feel good for a longer period of time. So, like, how do I make that decision this morning, right? And the truth is, is, like, in that morning or that moment, it's probably not the biggest deal. You know, and it might feel more consequential if we're thinking about our – career choices which feels like they have they, they set us off on a trajectory to lead us into one direction or another or the choices of how yeah. we parent our children right there's all kinds of decisions around that and they start straight from birth about you know the decisions that we make about parenting and they all feel very consequential so here's here's the uh, the key idea for us which is that we would argue that in these decisions there's tremendous value in looking at the potential of both sides And asking, Mm -hmm. can I accommodate both approaches as I think about, and think about the relationship between them, right? So- So here's an example um, and something I've been thinking about, which is the question about parenting. So I have two 16-year-olds and a 10-year-old, and we've run the gamut on, you know, parenting often has this tension between wanting to be really disciplined and structured in how you help raise your kids versus like wanting to be more empowering of them and give them more space to be more autonomous. And I feel like so many of our parenting decisions are stuck in between those two modalities And oftentimes what we find, and, you know, it turns out that my husband and I, who are incredibly similar in our values, sometimes we'll take very slightly different approaches on one or the other about how much discipline on chores or on bedtime or on screen time or whatever the other, Just you know, we might sort of tweak one side or the other. And my husband and I can both be pretty stubborn and it can lead us into a, you know, conflict with each other. Know this, know that, know this, know that. And, you know, what we've learned over time is that, if we can pause and, and the truth is it it's you know, as you're saying, they weren't they're not so far off in right. the ways that we think about these. Oftentimes they're actually quite close to one another. But if we can pause and sit and listen to one another And understand what each other is saying. And what's the value of being more disciplined? And how do we think about that? And why are, you know, why are we interested in that approach? And what's the value of being more empowering or, you know, enabling them more, uh, more independence? And what's the value of that? And what does that look like? Then maybe we can come up with an approach. So there's, there's two things. Maybe we can come up with an approach that allows us to accommodate and take advantage of both discipline and empowering. And in fact, what we've thought through is what are the disciplined guidelines that we can create for our kids that allow them more empowerment and decision-making in this process. And so what are the ways that these things reinforce each other? And so, so that's one piece of this, which is how do we find ways in which these things sort of are more intertwined by doing a deeper dive the other thing that I want to say, and we can unpack this more for sure, because I think this is important, yeah. is that one thing that we find in thinking about these decisions is that oftentimes we're sort of confronted by decisions, but um, but uh, but that it's not like we have to make one decision and we're done with it, right? So we sort of think about like, have I got that one decision right? Well. How about thinking about if we think about this in the longer term, over time, where we make a decision and then we get the chance to revisit that decision, experiment, try new things, learn more information, experiment, rethink that decision, make maybe make a different decision. And consistently thinking about those over time, it empowers us to actually be more complex overall in our decision making. And so the first you know, approach where these things reinforce each other, we call that Being, you know, finding a creative integration, a place where there's a win-win, you know, when we talk about that as a mule, because the mule or the the image we use is a mule, because the mule is this ideal hybrid between, you know, smarter than a donkey, faster than a horse. Uh, But then, you know, when we think about, well, how can we accommodate decisions over time where sometimes we're shifting one way or the other? We talk about that as being consistently inconsistent, giving ourselves a chance for inconsistency so that we can accommodate different opinions. And the image we use for that is a tightrope walker, because in order to go forward on a tightrope, the tightrope walker is never balanced. They're always kind of making these micro shifts back and forth, balancing, shifting left and right. And what that looks like is that sometimes our decisions might be more discipline oriented. Sometimes they might be more, uh, more sort of empowering for our kids. And we're constantly sort of rethinking our approaches and shifting between the two so that we can accommodate both over time.
0: Wendy, I, I thanks for bringing that up. Cause I had pulled that out and I forgot about it, that you talk about, we tend to pursue this balanced life. I'm paraphrasing now, as opposed to this life that we are trying to balance continually balancing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you said. Cause I love that aspect of the type rope walker if you watch somebody, they don't go along and that bar that they're holding on to is perfectly level. They're kind of going along, kind of go along. And then, 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 Whoa, we do that out here in Colorado. Slack line uh, is, is real popular. Right. And you go along that man. And it is a consistent balancing. You don't walk across it perfectly balanced. And I appreciate that because yeah, that's life. I don't, I look at my day. I look at my week. I look at my month and I find myself taking care of this over here. Cause it needs It needs attention, and by the time I get that taken care of, I'm whoa, I'm out of balance over here, and so I go over here. Now, over the month, hopefully, I have in about you know I I have taken care of things at an adequate level and not gotten way out of balance and gone off the rails somewhere. But it does; it brings a different perspective to the concept of trying to go along with all this tension of trying to keep everything perfectly level all at the same time, and it's impossible unless you just back off and don't do much, which is not very many of anybody who's listening to this show. Um, so that seems significant. But you also said something a minute ago that I want to pull out, Wendy. And it was our propensity to make a decision. And you'll have to clarify how you said it again. But we make a decision and then we really want to bolster it. We really Now we've got bias connected to it. Our self-image is connected to it. And we want to do that. But if I do what you just talked about and I come in saying, look, I'm, I'm looking at these options. I can't be certain. And that's what you said. It doesn't have to be forever. So with the, again, with the best that I can figure out right now, I'm going to do that, but I am going to put it out there as, you know, this is the best I can. And I'm going to come back and look at it as opposed to make it pretend that I'm certain about it and then hold on to it for dear life to justify what I did that that word justify is one that I think we kill ourselves with. And I have as well. And I'm trying to find a place in your book and your message is helping me of doing something and going, look again, it's the best I can figure out right now. And I'm not going to justify it. It's just, I've got to make a decision on this. So I'm going to do this, not going to justify it uh, and make that effort. And yet we're in such a justifying culture That we attach ourselves to, as opposed to being willing, as you said, to hold the tensions.
1: Yeah. And maybe it's, um you know, have some rationale behind your decision and be yeah. open to making a different decision, okay. you know, and be open to knowing that you can shift along the way. And I want to just, you know, bring in some empathy about why that, you know, that's hard. And again, it goes back to this idea of being consistent. So first of all, uh, there's these biases that once we've made a decision, we want to be right. It's yeah. our ego. Yeah. We yeah. then surround ourselves with other people's the confirmation bias, right? We surround ourselves by other people who are going to reinforce why we should be right or, you know, reinforce our point of view because it helps us feel better that it justifies what we believe. Right. And then there's the escalation of commitment bias. Once we have sunk, you know, it's it's the, once we have made a decision and we want to justify it, this um, work by Barry Staw out in Berkeley, right. Has the coined this phrase, the escalation of commitment, where we find that once That's people great. make a decision on something, they continue to, uh, delve into that and reinforce and continue to make, even when the decision no longer makes sense. Right. And so, and, you know, and, and I, again, I want to have empathy about why, I mean, a part of it is that the people around us really want us to be, so we want to be consistent because it's what, um, psychologically feels right to us. And again, there's a bunch of research on that, but also the people around us want to be consistent, right? So Kevin, I'll give you an example. So, um, 20 years ago uh you know more more than 20 years ago i became vegetarian and just decided personally i didn't want to eat meat and then some years later i became vegan you know i didn't want to eat eggs and cheese and it's a it's a it's a uh, lifestyle i guess that works for me it doesn't work for everybody it works for me and um so people challenge me on it all the time in part because i think that and less so these days, because I think that increasingly more and more people are vegan. But, you know, like it sort of threatens people that I've chosen to be vegan, maybe because they're thinking about it on their own. But here's the thing about being vegan over at some point in time, I realized that, you know, I was sort of interested in uh, eating something that had dairy in it or having some eggs because it made me feel better. And so every once in a while, like every couple of months, I might choose to do that. And so to me, this is about the consistent inconsistency. Either I could choose to completely give up being vegan and say, I'm no longer vegan because every three months I choose to have some eggs. Or I can say, look, I'm going to live in this balancing between like, this is the discipline that I have and the commitment that I have and the way that it works better for me and what I like. And I'm going to be okay that I make a choice that every couple of months it doesn't work for me because that choice is going to let me actually commit more of the time. By allowing myself to do that. But the, the but what's problematic is that other people are really confused by, well, you had an egg. Does that mean you're no longer vegan? Is that, you know, and it's other people that, that really sort of impose that sense of needing to be consistent in that way that, you know what, like, I don't feel like I need to. I feel like actually that consistent inconsistency, that ability to give myself the chance to pause and not do that actually allows me to be more committed more of the time to being vegan.
0: Wendy, I love it. Uh, I love it because you are testifying to a journey that I continually have been on, even on that one. So I was vegan and then right. vegetarian. And it was not until, I probably didn't have red meat for close to 30 years. And early this Uh, I was gonna say season cycling season, uh, went, I got together with a new group of guys and we were doing a team event, whatever, went to one of the guys, he lived in the town and did a big spread for us. And we came over, it was hamburgers and I just on the spur of the moment decided, whatever, and so I had a hamburger, uh, and, and since then I have a, a couple times. And, but again, yeah, that, that propensity, why do we, and I've done this so often confine myself to this thing that when we make the decision that is now our label. And if you buy Ford, you always buy Ford. If you are Republican, then you just, no matter what. Even if all the Republican uh, somebody's gonna get really pissed, I'm not, I'm really not making a point on current political s- statements. So please don't go uh, to that. But just as analogy, if I'm Republican and yet I look at the candidates and I just don't line up with them and there's a Democrat that overall I do, can I vote for that person and yet still say I'm a Republican? Can I be primarily vegetarian? Even though today I chose to have a hamburger and can I say man I just don't really like country music but ooh that one I like and it's now on my playlist and my kids go dad I thought you didn't like country music well right. go figure and that, that again the bias I like what you said an escalation is that what it, right escalation of commitment was that the term yeah yeah that is so strong and so you're allowing yourself to I, I was going to say violate. That's kind of a bad word. The, but the paradox is that to have that tension and to say they are, yeah, it's so good. we're back to that intertwined aspect. But why do we have that propensity to confine ourselves? And, and I'll just own that, Wendy. I have done that and realized, man, I am confining myself from something, and I would actually like to do X, and I'm imposing this label limitation on me for what reason? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And I think the important thing here is that you know and. Um, uh, the important idea here is that we're not um, traversing moral boundaries, right? It's it's meaning that it's not as if we're sort of being loose and saying, well, sometimes we can sort of, you know, go into the gray zone morally. That's not what we're talking about. I mean, you know, I have moral reasons to be vegan, but I also have, but also like, you know, but I don't see that as a moral choice, right? So it's not like um, we're saying, oh, well, we can sort of be really loose on boundaries when it comes to morality, no, but I think that what we do need to do is be open and curious to alternative points of view, because we can get ourselves to something more creative, more sustainable, more generative, if we can see these different perspectives and be able to see how, you know, and, and not confine ourselves within one perspective. And I think politics is a great one, right? And increasingly, we do live an incredibly polarized world. I'm a big fan of Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized. Like, can we do a little bit of a deep dive of how we got here? But the idea is that we're all living in echo chambers where each side has sort of picked an identity and a way of thinking and um, really talks to themselves uh, in this confirmation bias, while vilifying the other side. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it really, we talk about this as one of the one of the things that we talk about is, is why either or thinking is so problematic. It's so problematic, when we have either or thinking where we think that we're right, and another person or another group thinks that we think that they're wrong. We talk about it as trench warfare, this polarization, because it's like you're digging a trench deeper and deeper, where you can only see the people that are on your side. And all you're doing is looking out to the other side that you don't know, and you don't really understand what they believe. You only sort of see it in the kind of big, broad brush strokes, and you're just shooting out at the other side. And there's consequences as a result. And that's what we're seeing in our politics, as opposed to, you know, can we have a conversation with somebody that really thinks differently than us, and just listen to what they think, And respect and honor them and think about how it might inform us, but we don't have to necessarily agree with them. Right. But how can we sit and just listen to them so that we can come to some sort of deeper respect and maybe, you know, come to a better overall decision. Right. So, when the Dobbs decision, the abortion decision was handed down, uh, my colleague, Marianne Lewis and I sat down and we said like, you know, the problem with this issue is that we're swinging to the extreme back and forth. But if you talk to people about what they really think about abortion, most people, you know, like people might put out a point of view that says, uh, Pro-choice, pro-life, or whatever their like, you know, labels are that they're going to put on it. But when you really talk to people, there's nuance in this discussion. People have really nuanced and complex ideas, and oftentimes those ideas are not so far apart from one side or the other that if people really sat down and talked to each other across these different perspectives, we could probably come to a better um, outcome and a better policy and a better laws. That accommodated more different people's points of view, but instead we just pit this as one side or the other without really listening to different people's points of view.
0: I'm so glad you brought it up, Wendy, because yeah, I mean, what topic is more volatile uh, ever? But right now, than abortion. And I had an exp- I'm not even going to go through the story because it, it involves some people. I won't. I won't out in this, but. Um, had an experience with some out somebody outspoken on the uh, pro li- uh, pro life pro choice uh, side, and what was very blatant to me is really what you said. The people fighting for one or the other, I find at the heart of it, they have really similar values. They're valuing. The life of the mom or the baby, but they're valuing life. And what we found in this event that happened is the vast majority didn't care either way. They're just flat out indifferent, which you would tend to say, this is a big topic. I think that you probably should have some feelings on this. And what we, what I, what I found, instead of taking the polar side of pro pro pro-life or pro-choice, I found myself, I'm kind of seeing them in the same place of a value and over here, people who just don't give a crap. And if we saw it that way, I think that they would find some common ground and at least less volatility and not, a again, an, an evilness on one of those sides. Because that's not like what you said. It's not what I find to the people who truly care. Now, granted, out there in the media, we often are hearing from the people who are paid to fight for that side, not the people who are really caring at the front lines, but the fighters. So we got to put that in the mix. But, uh, I see that. I I see what you're saying. I felt that in your book that we often, there is a tension, but like you said, the enmeshment is, is really from a often a lot of common commonalities more so than not, but we don't hold that. And I do have a question for you. Do we, um, do we hurt ourselves when we're looking at a decision, whether it's a big ticket one or a small ticket one? It feels like we have a propensity when we're holding two options to try to look for what's wrong in one of them in order to discount them. Should we, would we, am I right in hearing you extrapolating that you're saying we're better off to look at what is right with both of them? And make it as opposed to try to look on the negative side and just try to look at what's wrong. Because I find myself doing that. It's just really easy if I'm looking at the two. If I can find something that's really wrong, you brought up morals even, uh, then I can discount it and I don't have to hold attention.
1: Yeah. And again, you know, again it's back to this idea that, you know, if we can sort of open up to that there's there's value in these opposing perspectives. Yeah. There's yeah. value in the abortion debate, the two different perspectives. There, Each has value to them. There's value in my, you know, career decision debate of these two different perspectives and what each has to offer. And can we, st- you know, oftentimes what we do is we look for the, the pro-con list and in service of like, can I make a choice really quickly? And again, we were talking about just the reason we do this is to sort of Set, get things set and feel more comfortable, right? But can we start by looking at what's the value on each side? Mm-hmm. We talk about this as a strategy, a, a strategy for what we talk about is separating and connecting, right? So can we look at these two different sides and actually drill down and understand what's valuable about both in service of finding the points of connection, the finding mm-hmm. the, the ways in which we can get to a better decision, um, I'm a big fan. And actually, in chapter nine of our book, we, uh, we talk about how can you apply ideas of paradox. So in chapter eight, nine and 10, we're like, okay, here's, here's a bunch of ideas. The book says, here's why paradox matters. And here's why both and thinking matters. Here's some tools of how to do this. And then chapter eight, nine and 10 says, okay, with these tools, can we apply this to our individual decision making? Can we apply this to these intergroup conflicts that we're talking about? And then can we apply it to how leaders might lead organizations? And in the intergroup conflicts chapter, um, we go to the work of uh, Barry Johnson, who I am um, just such a fan of, and his work with his colleagues at Polarity Partnerships. And they have um, what they call a polarity map. And what they do is that when there's groups with different points of view, or even individuals that have different perspectives, but they invite you to think about the different perspectives, think about the upside of each perspective, think about the downside of each perspective and then think about what are you trying to accomplish overall? And then how can you value or engage with the upsides of both perspectives as opposed to being in this like, you know, race to the bottom where you're just sort of shooting at each other on the yeah. downsides of each perspective. And just to ground this very quickly, you know, the example that we use in the chapter is from their work, where they did some deep dive work in um, Charleston, South Carolina, working with the um, chief of police and the police force to try and a- to achieve what their goal is, is community safety. But the police and citizens in Charleston were often at you know, in conflict with each other. I mean, we see this in the, in the, you know, movement, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, you know, this has been on the front line of attention that we've seen in our country. And, and even, you know, way before this happened, uh, Chief Greg Mullen said, you know, how can I work with citizens, not against citizens to achieve community safety? And he sat down in you know, dozens of listening sessions where he brought together his police force along with citizens to talk with one another about their differing perspectives, to hear their different approaches and experiences, and to share that with one another and then ask themselves, how can we get to a better place where instead of working at cross purposes toward a common goal, we can work with each other. Toward that common goal. And it was incredibly profound work that they did. They ended up uh, pulling it together in something they called the Illumination Project. Uh, Jake mm. Jacobs was really active with this. Margaret Seidel was really active with this. A lot of work over time to try and move beyond these like gut instinct reinforced conflicts in service of getting to a better both and.
0: Well, you're back to what you referred to with you and your husband and which I related to with parenting and looking and going, are your values really different? Does one of you not give a crap about the kid and the other does? Of course not. And so we may have a different perspective and, you know, bringing it down to a, a, a simpler level, even, I mean, it's the age old argument or friction between you know sales and manufacturing, the cooks, right. cooks and servers. You're thinking, right. don't we have the same common goal we do? And yet we get on the different side of the of the mountain or the beach ball or whatever, and we only see our side. And can we come together and understand the other side? One piece of this that I pulled out of the book that I just wanted to hit was And it's your quote. I'll read it right out. It says, we reach for, well, because as we're looking at these both and thinking and looking at decisions that we're usually looking from a couple, from a a couple different perspectives that you pulled out. And this is it. We reach for stability Mm -hmm. to keep us grounded and focused. We seek change for novelty, adventure, and growth. So I want people to hear that again. We reach for stability to keep us grounded and focused. That's good. We all want some aspect of that. We seek change for novelty, adventure, and growth. But you followed that, not but, and you followed that and just kind of playing around with it that sometimes you said the stability that we may want may only come from the change that's needed. And and again, looking at that as another, well, I guess we're back to paradox, aren't we?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yes. You know, it's such a good one. And I think I heard in one of your previous shows, you were playing around with this concept of how, you know, what are the, what are the boundaries that we need to create in order to enable us to have adventure and growth? And what's the, you know, how do I be my authentic self where there's something that feels really stable and authentic, but at the same time change, which feels inauthentic. And actually, you have to be somewhat inauthentic or feel a little bit inauthentic to get to authenticity to change to grow to try something new because it doesn't right, always feel great. immediately authentic and you know and so it is this sense of and and actually over time if you don't change and grow the situation around you changes and all of a sudden everything that feels so right no longer feels right so so you have to change and grow you know i think um Part of that idea, and, and one of the things that we, we certainly find in, in our research and in others, is that um, in order to change, we actually, the, the more we can create clear boundaries, the better we can change. The more that we can create some sort of stability, the better we can change, right? So, like leaders uh, that, you know, we know leaders when they want change what they have to do is they have to sort of scope out the playing field set the boundaries and within those boundaries it gives people a lot of flexibility to try new things to experiment to change to you know to enable things so boundaries and stability actually helps us make change when we feel more comfortable in ourselves that's when we can feel more confident to try something new but when we are you know and the more things that we try that are new and change and adventurous that's when we actually add to and expand what is authentic and stable about ourselves. So there is this interdependent relationship between the two.
0: You know, ultimately I, when I look at the message of your book, the research that you and Marianne did, it really feels like a a permission giving permission to just like a breath of fresh air, take a deep breath. And I don't have to be certain. And, and I think right now it is maybe one of the best medicines that we could use. Cause if everybody right now goes and checks out whatever your favorite news source is, you know, CNN, Fox, USA today, whatever it is, go look at the, you're, you're primarily going to see highly opinionated headlines on certainty on so-called certainty that I think rarely exists and yet we're called to. I f- that's where I feel, Wendy, is we the social pressure these days, again, to have knowledge of everything yeah. and to have a side and to be certain on it, as opposed to what you talked about being able to say, you know what? I, I don't totally know. I can't be certain. I do have to make a decision. So based on that, this is the one that I'm choosing right now. It may change that that feels, it feels like maybe there's our primary anti-anxiety med that we're under right now. When you have to be certain about every decision, you're not going to want to make decisions. You're going to be scared to death of them. You're going to avoid them. And then when you do make one, you're going to unhealthfully attach to that with the bias that you talked about. And again, I got to go back up there. What was the terminology again? Uh, The escalation yes, that is a great uh, it's a great term uh, escalation of commitment instead of uh, it almost feels I was going to say humility, but it, right. it, it may be, is it that, or does it also speak somewhat to shouldn't I be confident enough to not have to be certain? Is that fair?
1: Yeah. And you know, I, so I want to ground this in a, we, we use the um, Hindu parable of the blind, I'll say the blind people and the elephant to ground this. And the message here is that, um, one of the reasons we shouldn't be certain is because we certainly don't see the whole picture, like the humility to know that we see a perspective and that we should feel confident in that perspective, but we don't see the whole picture and there's more to know. And in fact, we love this paradox of knowledge. The more, you know, the more, you know, you don't know. In fact, like the, we're more certain when like our teenagers are really certain because I remember when when I was that
0: certain. Yeah. Right.
1: (laughs) That kind of certainty. It's like, wait, the world is bigger. And so the parable is, um, This like classic Hindu parable where a group of blind people approach something in front of them. Turns out it's an elephant and each one of them sort of approaches a different part of the elephant and therefore walks away with a different understanding of what they approach. So one person approaches the tusks and thinks that they, this is a spear and one person approaches the trunk and thinks this is a, you know, this is a swing and one person approaches the tail and thinks that this is a snake. And one person approaches the legs and thinks this is a tree trunk. And because they've approached one piece of it, and they're so certain what they've experienced from their bit of information and knowledge. And then they just get into a conflict with one another about what this is. No, it's a snake. No, it's a tree trunk. No, it's a, as opposed to maybe having the humility to step back and listen to what the each person approached and being able to put it together into a bigger picture. And so that's what we feel like when it comes to these different perspectives. And again, you know, people might have different perspectives and we don't necessarily agree with them. But is there something in there that we can learn? You know, we only have one piece of the puzzle. Can we have the humility to your word there, which I think is so important to recognize we only have one piece of the puzzle and maybe there's something bigger to learn? So you know, in my conversations with my husband, what we have learned to recognize over time is A, that we have similar values, B, that we have the same goal of raising healthy, productive kids that are going to be able to be incredible humans that are going to contribute to the world and C, if we stop and listen to one another of the different approaches we have of how to get there, we can get to a better place together. And certainly, over time, it's more valuable. It's less valuable if we just spend every conversation fighting with each other about our perspectives because we want to be right. And it's more valuable sort of building a trusting relationship where we respect and honor each other. And to be fair, sometimes these discussions end up with me saying, okay, you know what? I get it. Let's go with what you decide. And sometimes these discussions end up with, okay, he gets it and he's going to go with what I decide. And that's the tightrope walking. That's the sort of, nuance shifting and sometimes these discussions are okay well we've listened to each other we can actually come up with a better decision because if we bring a little bit of yours and a little bit of mine together this might be a better approach overall and that's the mule or the integrative creative mm. integration
0: i love your story the the old hindu story because as you're telling them, i'm sitting thinking the only thing that they could be certain of was that they're all blind uh, that's, that's the only certainty we've got. And so if I look at that and go, look, I'm pretty, the only thing I'm certain of is I don't know everything about this. I'm going to do the best that I can. And then, you know, to that, you made the the quote and I've seen it before in so many ways, the phrase of, you know, the more I, the more I know, uh, the more I realize how little I know and yeah. that it, Erodes my trust when I hear certainty. And I say this as the, you know, hopefully more so in the past, the chiefest of sinners with that certainty. But when I hear certainty now and I see it spoken about, I trust it less because I know it's not possible to be that certain. And I find, yeah, as you uh, said something to, you know, the people that I deem as wise are some of the ones that are the most apt to go. You know what? I don't know. Now I did make a decision on X. Like you, I decided to eat this way based on some personal things, some individualized things. And that is, you know what? Let's, let's, uh, I I do, I'll pull one more thing out before we end. And that was because you got me thinking to that of how often this decision between these seemingly polarized things is this paradox is not an across the board issue. It's a very individualized issue. And we talk about, let's even to take diet and everybody wants to know what is the exact, what is the best way to eat? Is it vegetarian? Is it keto? Is it paleo? Is it whatever? And of course the question, the answer, the only certain answer is it depends, (laughs) depends on you and your genetics and your makeup and your performance. I'm doing a mountain bike race tomorrow and I'm going to eat a few things that I don't actually often eat, but I've realized I can perform better on them. It may not be best even for my health, but I'll race faster. And I want that. So my goal has changed. And so what is the black and white? There isn't one, there's an individualized and how often are the decisions that we're trying to make? Not one that we would say, this is the best plan for humanity across the board, but it may just be the best plan just for me. And if you want to know what's best for you, we're going to have to enter a conversation and talk about this and figure out an individualized solution, fair?
1: Yeah, I mean, and just think about the power in that and the complexity and, you know, and it's a little uncomfortable, right? Because people want real clear answers. Yeah. And one of the things that I love that you've, that we've sort of surfaced several times in this conversation that I think is so important, and you said this a couple of times, is the extent to which um, we turn to our leaders for certainty, We don't, we are, and you just said it now, the people that we think are really wise are the ones that can express that kind of complexity and maybe the unknown and maybe the uncertainty. And yet the expectation that we have of our political leaders, certainly of our media, that there's certainty and clarity and specificity, and we just want to know. And so there's, you know, a bit of that duality going on about how we can, um, enable, you know, I think that that kind of certainty reinforces our need for certainty and our need for certainty reinforces that kind of leadership. And can we grow in the complexity as a society to have the grace to be learning a learning society, to be a curious society, to be an open society, to be a, you know, an experimental society and not one that's so black and white.
0: I I love it. As opposed to there's fewer things that I know, but I sure am curious. And uh, I'm holding up the book for those watching the video. This, uh, uh, thank you. I feel more permission to be curious and to admit that I'm curious. I don't know. Um, a, a breath of fresh air. Yeah, thank you. I, I so I'm eager to talk with some more people about this. I have some specific. I actually, I have a guys group that this comes up a lot. We we've often use the term of it's the bother. It's the bother. But we didn't have a, a framework for that. You've done the research, so thank you for the work that you and Marianne did to bring this forth. The research you did and the uh, personal examples that you gave. And thanks for being with me today, so I can learn from all you've done.
1: Thank you. This is really fun. I have learned as well. So thank you. <laughs> thank
0: you, Wendy. Thank you. Well, again, you can find Wendy K. Smith and Marion W. Lewis's book, Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems at Amazon or anywhere you get your books. Thanks, as always, for choosing to tune in to the Self-Helpful Podcast. If you got value, it'd be great if you left a review about the podcast and about this specific episode. Let others know what you think, and best thing you can do is talk about what you hear with someone else. Go deeper with this discussion. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself so that you can help others.